This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. According to an annual report from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, Connecticut is home to the eighth priciest rental market in the nation. The average amount needed to afford a two-bedroom apartment here is now a staggering $24.29 an hour for a person making minimum wage. That means working about 106 hours each week. Doesn't seem sustainable, does it? Just how did our rental market market get so expensive, though? Well, there's not enough supply to meet the demand. Whether you're nearing retirement or just starting out, the high cost of rent is a big problem in our state. So what can we do about it? Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. How have high rental prices affected you? We'd like to hear your story if you've been searching for a place to live at the right price. We're going to bring in first Susan Campbell, who's a writer who's been working with us on a series of stories about homelessness over the last year. And she's just kicked off in the last month or so, a new housing and homelessness series uh, with support from the Melville Charitable Trust that we're going to be doing all year long here at WNPR. We're very excited about the project, Susan. It's always good to have you back. Good to be here. Thank you. So first of all, explain this first story and why you decided to dig into some of these things. I mean, the the high cost of housing usually means to a lot of us, we think about what a, a single family home costs in the market. But once you get into the cost of rental housing, you see, boy, this is a big problem. It really is. And I think that, and and Katie Schaefer, who's here, can probably speak more to this, but there's been a trend for more uh, demand for rental housing in Connecticut as well. And that's the result of the baby boomers um, getting older, maybe downsizing, and then their children, the millennials, often wanting to start out with rental property, not jump right into the housing market. And there's just not enough to go around. So what exists can really go at a premium. 34% of Connecticut households is about 447,000 rent. That's up from 30% in 2007. So the numbers really are going up, it seems. They really are. And it looks like they keep trending in the last seven years. They've just sort of inched up and there's no sign that it's going to stop. So you mentioned the the couple of age groups here. The population nearing retirement is the group that you really focused on in your first story. In part, this is important because you're looking at people who probably are changing their lifestyle around and probably will be seeing some sort of a drop in income. That's true. And Connecticut is aging, and it's aging uh, among the most fastest of the states. It's it's aging quickly. Uh, and people want to stay in Connecticut, despite all the complaints you can read on comments. People <laughs> like Connecticut. There's a lot to like in this state. So as you get older, you don't necessarily want to become a snowbird and go to Florida. You want to stay maybe even in your own town, but not in the same house where you raised your family. I I used some of the statistics early on, and and we could probably get uh, statistic heavy very quickly. But let's just, uh, you know, give people a little explanation of what we're talking about here, Susan. If you're looking to rent right now, I mean, how expensive is it? What does it cost? Uh, Depends on the town. Yeah. Definitely depends on the town. But you're looking at rental prices that... For someone like me and, and just personally, my husband and I sold our house. We decided we would rent. Neither one of us had rented for so long that we were still thinking rent is cheaper than mortgages. <laughs> sure. Silly us. They, in fact, are not. In fact, in some towns, high-resource towns in particular, towns with good schools, towns you want to live in, uh, often the the rent far outstrips the mortgages. So you're looking at people who are losing income because they're retiring. Maybe they have pensions, maybe they don't. So they do see sometimes a steep drop in income with a commiserate housing market that's not 
going to suit their needs at all financially. And, and, you know, sometimes just because of the way people's lives are changing, what you want to do, how long you're going to stay in a place, rental renting might make more sense, even if it's more expensive, right? You don't have to take care of the property the same way. You don't have to worry about selling it. Um, look, I've had the same house for a long time, and it's worth quite a bit less after the housing collapse than it was before. So I couldn't really sell if I wanted to. For a lot of people, renting is probably the right idea. It's just too expensive, right? It's the right idea, and it's too expensive. So what you find are people are doing some heroic things in order to rent. They're doubling up. They're living in houses that that are housing that maybe isn't sufficient to their needs. They're maybe living in somewhat substandard housing, but they're renting. You talked about uh, how it really matters what part of the state you're in. We talk about Connecticut being the eighth highest state. This is really driven by the fact that Stanford Norwalk down in Fairfield County, that market is one of the most expensive anywhere, right? The housing wage for Stanford Norwalk is is $37.37. In Danbury, it's it's over $30. Just explain again this this housing wage. What are we talking about here? Sure. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition does major data, and they come up with how much would it cost you to rent a decent two-bedroom apartment, sometimes in some markets a one-bedroom apartment, um, in a particular geographic area. And what they found was Connecticut has two of the most expensive rental markets for a metro area in the country, and that's that's Danbury is, is on that list as well as uh, Stanford Norwalk. The amount of money that you make that you're supposed to actually spend on housing is always something that's calculated, and you're supposed to figure this out before you buy a house, right? I mean, how how is that calculated? I mean, how would you know if you're spending too much on housing or if you could actually afford to spend a little more on a a rental property? The Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development says as a target, 30 percent is a good target to keep your housing costs under. That is a horrible sentence, and I hope people can make fun of it. You don't want to spend more than 30% of your monthly income, say, on housing. But in Connecticut, something like 49% of, and Betsy Crumb's nodding her head, 49% of Connecticut renters are spending more than 30% of their household income on housing, which means other things go wanting, maybe health care, maybe your kids can't go on field trips. So it has a huge effect when you're throwing your house poor or your apartment poor. And I actually want to get some reaction to some of your story in just a moment from some of our other guests, but I'll bring in Betsy Crumb, Executive Director of the Connecticut Housing Coalition, uh, for a moment just to comment on this. And Betsy, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you. Uh, that number, 30 percent, we've been hearing that for an awful long time. Is that like a real number, a realistic number for people? But Or, or if you're actually spending 30 percent of what you make on housing, is it is it like way too much? Well, it used to, when I first started in this business uh, 30 years ago, it was 25 percent. That was the standard that was that was felt to be the right number so that people had enough money left over to pay for things like food, uh, clothing, transportation. It's inched up to 30 percent, I think, in recognition that housing is more expensive. Um, it, I think for home ownership, it's a little bit high. It's considered a little higher you can go. But the truth is not only are 49% of people paying more than 30% of their income on housing in Connecticut, 27% spend more than half their income on housing. And that's really considered a worst-case housing situation where those folks, 27% of all renters, are paying more than they could ever reasonably afford for their housing, leaving them almost nothing 
left for other things. We're talking about the high cost of rental housing in the state. We're talking with Susan Campbell about a story that she's done for a new series we're doing on housing and homelessness, which you can find at WNPR.org. Susan, you spoke with someone, you profiled a woman who recently took the plunge into Connecticut's uh, rental housing pool. Uh, Before we hear a bit from Leslie Gordon, what can you tell us about her? Um, Leslie Gordon found her circumstances changing in that she was going through a divorce and she and her husband had owned a home in Avon and she wanted to stay in Avon. She's a small businesswoman, so she didn't want to have to commute. She also has two teenage sons who opted to live with their father in the family home and she obviously wanted to be close to them. So her um, her market was fairly small and she looked specifically, she looked at other places, but she eventually settled in Avon and it was not cheap. Let's listen. There's a lot of people who are like me, and I didn't really realize it. And I think that's helped me to feel like this isn't just an isolated problem that I've created myself somehow and that everybody else is is really doing okay, <laughs> you know, that there's a lot of people that are really struggling out there. Not that that makes me feel better for my struggle, but it makes me feel normal for my struggle. You know, it makes me feel like, oh, okay, this isn't just me making it up. This isn't just me making not enough money. This isn't just me failing in whatever I'm doing. It's, it's, a, it's a lot deeper than that. It's a, a deeper social issue. And um, I guess I would say chin up. You know, let's, let's get through this and figure out how to make it better. It's an interesting piece of realization for someone, Susan, right? She's, she's thinking she's doing the right thing, and she then starts to feel like she's a failure. She's not making enough money to actually live the way she wants to live, and you start digging into it a little bit more. It's not just her. It's, it's all over the place. It is all over the place. And, and as she said in another part of, of our conversation, she's an educated woman. She supports herself. She's managed to figure out the shoals of small business ownership. She's a co-owner of a yoga studio there in Avon, and yet... Here's this huge wall she's trying to climb just to have decent housing. I want to bring into the conversation also Katie Schaefer, who's policy analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And and also here with us is Nick Lundgren, who's deputy commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Housing. Thank you for coming in, Nick. Great to be here. I'd love your comments on what we've heard so far. Maybe, Katie, I'll start with you. When we talk about the lack of affordable housing, rental housing for people like the woman that we just, just heard, what are some of the first things that come to your mind? You know, the first thing that I think about is the lack of housing stock that's available. You know, New Haven has the lowest rental vacancy rate in the nation. Hartford has the sixth lowest in the country, and that's because there just isn't a stock of housing that's available. And this is harming moderate and low-income residents the worst because they're being squeezed out of the rental stock that is there. They're either paying too much for their housing or living in substandard housing. You know, and the way we got to this you know, 122 of our 169 towns built 40 percent or more of their housing stock after 1970 for the baby boomer population. And what that resulted in is two-thirds, 114 of our towns have 70 percent or more of their housing skewed towards single family. So those rentals just aren't out there. This past summer, the U.S. Department of Commerce reported that there's a 29 percent surge in demand for multifamily housing. That's the highest since 1987. So basically, Nick, we're we're paying now for all the building that we did post-baby boom in order to, I don't know, accommodate what we used to call the American dream? Well, I think it's really a question of, uh, you know, single-family homeownership is not the problem. It's just a housing option. It's just one of the housing options. And, and in Connecticut, we really just need more options, particularly affordable housing options. So that's really been our emphasis. Um, the lack of affordable housing uh, is... Um, is significant and it's statewide. 
And we see it across the spectrum in terms of uh, extremely low-income households on up to uh, households that are at about the area median income in their in their uh, income. Um, and it's statewide. It's in small towns, it's cities, it's suburbs, it's in Fairfield County, but it's also in some of our uh, more rural areas. Uh, rental housing in those areas are is also uh, through the roof. So affordability is absolutely a problem, and it's a problem both for those folks who are paying too much or finding it extremely difficult to find affordable housing. And it's a problem for the state as a whole as well. And we're going to be talking a bit more in the program about housing in suburban towns, not just in, in urban areas. But Betsy, you know, I, I think we could comment a little bit on this notion of what affordable housing means. This is something we've talked about on our program quite a bit, but I think it bears repeating that when uh, we have policy discussions about affordable housing, many people in the state begin to think about one thing. They begin to think about low-income housing and whatever that means to them. Affordable housing is is housing that is affordable to a lot of people, including the woman who owns a yoga studio in Avon and wants to be able to, you know, live in the town she wants to live in. Could you describe what you mean by affordable housing when you talk to people about it? Well, as you said, affordable housing is what's affordable to you. And I think there's the the sort of term of art of affordable housing, which is housing where people pay no more than 30 percent of their income on housing. And it's generally meant to refer to people who make no more than about 80 percent of the area median. That's a lot of data. But the truth is that we um, there's a need, as Nick said, for housing for, that is affordable to people at all income ranges. We have a, in the state about um, you know, less than half of the number of affordable housing units that are, are needed for people at the lowest income levels. We're doing a lot better at people at higher income levels. But, you know, truthfully, the, the market has been cr- crunched by what we've talked about, as well as foreclosures. For the foreclosure crisis um, that was in the late, in the late 2008-2009 put a huge amount of pressure on that on that rental housing stock as well, and we find um, in our work with people who are coming out of homelessness that lack of affordable housing is the is the number one reason why families become homeless. So that is that is really a huge uh, a huge push for the lower income folks. We got a tweet here from Abby who says, "I'm from Northern Indiana. I'm actually moving home when my lease is up in October because of the cost of housing. I love Connecticut." But I can't do it. And Susan, this is a story we've been hearing for years, and it and it plays along with so many of the things we talk about in the state as far as economic development, the way to keep young people here, whether they move here or they grew up here. And this is one of the biggest issues right now. If you can't afford to find a place to live, you're probably going to go elsewhere. And, you know, Indiana has much cheaper housing. Absolutely. I that just this week was talking to a young woman who's smart and good and adds so much to the state, and she's probably going to return to Rhode Island because she can't find housing here. Her lease is up in, I think, now a week and a half, and she works in for a nonprofit. She's not going to get rich there, and she can't afford housing. I want to get to a phone call from Eric in Waterbury. Hi, Eric. Go ahead. How you doing? Good. What's up? Um, I just figured I'd call in because I have, I have some affordable housing I can't get rid of. And um, I, I fixed up four houses, tried to sell them, and no one's able to get a loan around here. I mean, that's the problem I'm coming to. And I'm looking around, and there's like right where I'm sitting right now. There's every there's two houses empty, been empty for over a year now. One of them for over three years, and people come look at them. No one could get a loan. 
Hey, hey, and, yeah. Hey, Eric, stay in the line. I'd like to just keep you on and, and, and put your question there to, to Nick Lundgren. So, okay, so here's Eric. He's a guy who wants to develop housing. He's trying himself. He sees other uh, houses in his neighborhood that could be fixed up, but they're not. What's, what's the barrier for Eric, do you think? Well, I think there, it depends on the exact situation, but, but I guess one of the questions is whether these are multifamily properties um, that, he's, uh, that he's rehabbed and is uh, uh, seeking to sell or these are properties that, uh, that he's looking to rent out. It's a different market and if we're talking about multifamily housing for the purpose of trying to get rental units that are affordable to people at varying levels of income, the question is, uh, what is that? What is the value proposition there? What are the rents? What is his? What is his target market? Uh, Eric, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, this is what it was. I, I had. I actually wanted to sell them. So I had one house. I was willing to sell for forty thousand. I, I just to get rid. Of, and um, it's not it's moving condition, and it, 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 they can't. The banks tell them they can't give a loan out for less than fifty thousand because the rules in Connecticut. Um, limit them, and they they can only charge a per certain percentage. So it's not even. There's no way they could do it because they can't get paid. Mm. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for for telling us your story, and I, I I wish you good luck in in what you're trying to do, Katie Schaefer. I, I when people talk about the the lack of affordable housing, can we just talk a little bit about what's out there, what's not out there? I mean. Many Connecticut cities, Waterbury, New Haven, Hartford, well, they've got a lot of old homes in them, right? Homes that might be very expensive to fix up. You could rent them out. Maybe they're multifamily homes, but they're going to cost a lot of money. Then on the other hand, there's building brand new housing when there's these old buildings sort of sitting sitting by the side. I guess I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit and whether or not we have a disconnect in what we've got and what we need. Well, you know, only 32 of the towns have 10 percent or more of their housing stock designated as affordable, and that's mostly in the cities. So the opportunities for finding affordable housing outside of the cities is limited. And, you know, what happens is you need you need a you need a way for seniors and people who want to downsize to stay in their communities. But you also need a way in. You know, my husband and I rented in West Hartford and we bought in West Hartford. There needs to be more rungs on the housing ladder for people to get into those communities and in an affordable way so that they can, you know, pay off their education debts, save for a home, um, and save up for a rainy day, of course. So, you know, we need more ways into communities. Yeah. And Susan, you and I have talked about moving from town to town, place to place. I rented in, in the West End of Hartford for a while, and then I wanted to buy a home. And I couldn't afford the West End of Hartford or West Hartford or Avon or Canton or any of the towns heading out west where, where I liked. So I ended up in the cute little town of Winstead, a long way away from Hartford, in part because you find a place where you can live, where a place where you can afford, right? Also because you chose journalism. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That was a bad idea. Nice job, John. <laughs> Susan's going to be working with us on this series throughout the throughout the year. What's the next story? Just quickly, could you just tell us this next story you're working sure, on? Sure. I'm working on a story about uh, youth who are homeless in, in Connecticut, particularly in the LGBTQIA community. Susan Campbell has been covering housing and homelessness for us here on WNPR. We look forward to the series throughout the year. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we're going to continue with uh, Katie Schaefer from the Partnership for Strong Communities, Betsy Crum from the Connecticut Housing Coalition, and Nick Lundgren from the Connecticut Department of Housing. We're also going to be bringing in a town planner from the town of Avon. Talk a bit more about affordable housing in the suburbs. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about the high cost of rental housing in Connecticut. What can be done to bring that cost down to get more housing stock 
for people so that they can afford a place to live in our state and not leave like some people that we've been talking to so far. We've got uh, Katie Schaefer from the Partnership for Strong Communities and Betsy Crum from the Connecticut Housing Coalition with us, along with Nick Lundgren, who's Deputy Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Housing. Before we go to the town of Avon, I want to go to Christian, who's calling from New Haven. Hi there, Christian. Hello. Hi. What's on your mind? Uh, um, well, I had a, I had a um, thought about uh, housing. Yeah. I am a a small time small time landlord in in New Haven but the uh you know the, the thing about housing is uh, i think in Connecticut it's 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 very expensive to build uh it's for particularly single family or even in New Haven you have land costs building codes permitting uh land use restrictions so it's very expensive to build something and i don't know if that's a result of building codes or if that's the land costs but there has to be, a, I think, a loosening of some of that stuff to allow more, um, more, more um, uh, inexpensive uh, type housing to be built. And I also believe that uh, some of the building codes and, and, and the permitting and the land use uh, restrictions uh, curtail housing that could be built, built out by smaller time mm. property owners who might want to expand their properties. Uh, well, Christian, thank you. I think you raise a good point. Nick Lundgren, you have a, a thought about uh, Christian, and thank you for your call, Christian. Thanks, Christian. Actually, you raised a lot of really important points, and, and I, I can't uh, address all of them, but I want to try to address a few of them. The, you raised the issue about the cost of, of housing, uh, of just construction in Connecticut, and there's no question about that. We live in a, a four-season uh, climate. Um, we live in a place where uh, anything that's built uh, needs to be built in context, and so there are uh, extensive costs. In some cases, we have uh, construction that's subject to prevailing wage or union um, union wages, and those uh, are are naturally uh, going to be a little bit higher than the lowest possible bids. Um, but um, but that uh, the countervailing issue is whatever is constructed, we want to make sure that that's sustainable. We don't want uh, from the state's perspective, is that if the state is partially funding a project, we want to make sure that that uh, that that property is built uh, with quality um, uh, through and through, so that that property is going to be there for the next hundred years, not the next fifteen or twenty. Um, the issue about uh, codes and about um, zoning issues, there are. One of the things that that uh, raises, I think, from our perspective is that you, when the state, uh, you know, under this uh, administration, Governor Malloy has always um, kept affordable housing as a top priority and, and the legislature has strongly supported this. But what we needed to do was not simply uh, restart the engines. We really needed to look at where the, where the bottlenecks were in the process. Um, and so for people like Christian who are developers, who are uh, looking on on whatever scale to develop property, we need to try to make sure that we remove as many barriers as possible. We make the process as easy as possible, and we engage with municipalities that are um, that are uh, working on their own zoning rules to make sure that we're all achieving sort of mutual ends. Uh, we also got a tweet from New Haven. Anastasia says, "I bought my house after grad school. The taxes on my New Haven home are the same as my old rent." 
That's nuts, she writes, and often prohibitive. You can keep the tweets coming at where we live. I want to bring in Hiram Peck, who's Director of Planning and Community Development in the town of Avon. Hiram, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe you can talk a bit about the impact of zoning on on what we're talking about here. You're in a town uh, in Avon in the suburbs that we actually highlighted earlier from Susan Campbell's story. Just broadly first, to talk about zoning uh, town by town, city by city, and how, how widely it varies. Sure, absolutely. Well, first, I'd just like to say I'm, I'm relatively new here in Avon. I worked in Simsbury for nine years, so but I'm very familiar with the area. I can tell you that uh, the state has, in fact, taken affordable housing seriously ever since they passed uh, what's known as 8-30G, a section of the statutes which provided for 70% market rate and 30% affordable housing. Um, but that met with a tremendous amount of resistance from a lot of communities, and so what came uh, next was that the uh, the legislature decided to put together uh, what's called home Connecticut or incentive housing zones and allow municipalities to actually take the control of where these particular developments were located, what they look like. And they, in fact, uh, uh, increased the uh, percentage of, uh, of, of market rate housing to make it more profitable for developers, but they also uh, decreased the amount of, of affordable housing uh, permitted by that regulation. The thought was to give the communities uh, more of a chance to uh, design and fitting the housing developments into the community character and the context of the community, which was mentioned before. It's so important. Uh, what what we did in Simsbury a couple of years ago was we prepared a what's called a workforce housing overlay zone, uh, and that used that 20% affordable uh, characteristic and provided for higher density in the um, in some certain areas in town. And that's actually been extremely successful in the town of Simsbury. One of the complexes that just recently opened, it's only been open for about a month, is already one-third full. So we provided for a number of, of developments that included some affordable housing, and hopefully more will come in the future. The balance of that, though, is that the community character needs to be maintained, and the planning and zoning commissions in the communities have to be comfortable with the fact that the design fits into the community and that the housing is safe and, and obviously fits into the community. So can, that's, that's basically yeah. where they are. Can, can I just ask you what community character means? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think it varies from community to community, and that's one of the reasons this is such an elusive character. You know, this particular topic is so fascinating because it has so many aspects of societal change. You know, one of the things is that there's really a generational change that's happened. And one of the recent uh, texts that I was looking at, um, uh, it's called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And, and what he it, it talks about there is what killed civic engagement. And this whole thing about generational change uh, is reflected in the fact that towns have uh, different perceptions of their character. As you work with the planning and zoning commissions in each of these towns, you find out that what people think is community character varies from community to community. So you really need to get plugged into exactly what the community wants to look like, what they think they look like, and then what the realities are of how to provide that affordable housing within that character. So it varies significantly, John. Uh, Katie Schaefer and Betsy Crum, I'd like you to just comment a little bit on that. That that sounds like a, a, a tricky thing <laughs> to talk about what the community uh, wants to look like, what they want its character to look like, because there's probably a whole lot of overlays having to do with socioeconomic status and even race that might come into those discussions. Uh, could we talk about that a bit? <laughs> I mean, what what does that mean, uh, town by town, Katie? 
Sure. I mean, that's why the Home Connecticut program was designed the way it was, because it's now a tool that allows for a conversation townwide with all the residents to think about what kinds of housing, where it should be located, and what it would look like. You know, we do include a provision for design guidelines, because that is really important. You want a development that fits within a community and in, an, and in a neighbor, neighborhood. And what we saw in Old Sabre, for instance, was a multifamily property uh, composed of multiple townhouses in a single family neighborhood and it blends right in completely so, so visually it blends blends right in completely and, and that's a big piece of it I and mean, what are the other components we need to think about here betsy well you know i think we're we're connecticut right we're the land of steady habits and and local control and um i think if if we if we say that we should develop zoning that allows us to stay the, the same way that we are what will become is a state with extraordinary economic and racial segregation. And if you look at what has happened in Connecticut over the last hundred years, that's in fact what local control and local zoning has led to a much greater degree of that kind of segregation. What we really need to think about is if we're a true community, that community is a is a, a quilt, if you will, of of different people, of different economic statuses, of different colors and different backgrounds. And that really is the tradition of New England. And I think local zoning, in some ways, that local control has moved us away from that. Uh, Hiram Betsy makes a pretty good case there for one good reason why towns need to consider more affordable multifamily housing. What are some others in your mind? I mean, what's what's the argument maybe to be made in, in suburban towns around Connecticut to try to welcome in more affordable housing? Well, I think there's a lot of them, John, actually, in responses to Betsy's comment, too. I, I think that what a lot of the communities really need to ask themselves is how much do we need to change in order to stay the same? Because uh, there clearly is a, an emphasis on trying to stay the same, but how much change can take place actually within that community and not upsetting the total fabric of the care of the community is really critical as well. And I think that the, there's been a lot of movement toward that, and it's going to take people who really uh, are willing to sort of stick their neck out and uh, and and take advantage of some of the legislation that has been promo- uh, promoted and, and passed so that the communities can actually move forward on some of these. I think the communities that are proactive in that, Will, uh, will succeed uh, and they will survive and they'll in fact grow. I think that there's been an increase uh, more in, in communities which are sort of edging a little bit more toward a, an urban character and there's been a tremendous amount of pressure put on rural communities to survive in fact. And so some of the smaller communities in Connecticut are having an extremely difficult time. Their school enrollments are going down. Um, houses are, are difficult to sell in lots of cases. And I think it's because of this general shift toward the uh, the fact that um, younger millennials uh, want a lot of the conveniences that are associated with a slightly more urban character. I'm not talking about necessarily downtown Hartford or downtown um, Stanford, but uh, the, the the ability to get to a restaurant or to walkable walkable areas, uh, sustainable areas, is really critical as well. So when we can um, put these in, uh, environments together. We need to consider all these things and just how much we can change in order to actually have the community feel like they're staying the same. And we need to educate our boards and commissions in order to make them understand that this is really important for them to survive in the future. Uh, uh, Hiram just mentioned some of the rural towns. You you had said, though, Betsy, that uh, in our rural communities, we actually have very expensive rental housing markets, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, you you may be out there, maybe hard to unload your property, maybe not uh, near a whole lot. But if you want to rent an apartment in a small town, it's hard. 
It's very hard. And we're, the, I think, the fifth most expensive rural market in the country. And, um, you, you know, you, you see a lot of uh, hybrid solutions out there. Accessory apartments that were large single-family homes are allowed under zoning now. The zoning is changing, especially in the northwest part of the state, to allow people to build small, affordable apartments within their single-family home. You know, getting to Hiram's point, it doesn't at all change the character of the neighbor, of the community the the house looks the same on the outside, and yet there's an opportunity for somebody with a lower income to live there. And uh, you, you look at the school enrollments out there, they're really completely losing their families. I, I want to get to a quick phone call from Nicole in Norwich. Hi, Nicole. Go ahead. Hi, John. I just wanted to mention my experience in um, trying to find low-income uh, housing. Um, I'm a grad student at UConn, and we only make about twenty grand a year, and Trying to find apartments around Yukon is pretty much impossible for a grad student. I was paying around eight twenty-five a month for a very, very small apartment. I couldn't even afford it anymore. So I was wondering if, like, there was any way that they could try to regulate, like you said, those rural um, areas, try to regulate the rent for such small apartments. Uh, especially, you know, when you when you have such a need for uh, students who are not making that much money and, and working at the same time. Nicole, it's a great question. I, I thank you for joining us. Nick, do you have a thought for her? Well, I think we've taken a different approach rather than sort of a top-down rent regulation approach. We've really taken the approach of trying to expand affordable housing opportunities everywhere. And that's so that's not just in the cities. Um, though our multifamily investments in the cities, I think, are doing really well. The, the uh, multifamilies in downtown Hartford are leasing faster than expected and at higher rates than expected. So that speaks to a real need out there. But our approach has been also multifamilies throughout the state in small communities um, and uh, and medium-sized communities. And that's the way we've been approaching this. So in the past five years, the state has uh, helped to either create or preserve approximately 6,150 6, affordable units We've, we've got an additional uh, 2,900, a little over 2,900 units in construction now. And we've made commitments for, uh, for approximately 5,200 more than that. So these are happening in pretty much every municipality across the state, including in Mansfield uh, and in uh, communities like Putnam. But, you know, you name the municipality, we've got a project that's going on there. And it's a project that is a project that makes sense in the context of the community that has uh, – that underwrites. So financially, it's sustainable um, and usually it has the enthusiastic support of the community at large. Uh, Katie, you mentioned Old Saybrook before and I'd love to get from you if there are some other communities that you think are doing particularly well in in providing uh, affordable housing maybe outside the major cities. Sure. So, well, Old Saybrook has also undertaken 186 units that they're developing now, which will be that 20 percent of the housing will be for people making 80 percent of the AMI or lower. And that's going to be located right near the shoreline East Rail. And we haven't touched on the opportunities for transit yet. But there are 70 towns statewide that have participated in this home Connecticut program. And they're all points north, south, east and west. So in addition to Old Seabrook, there's Colchester, Sharon, uh, Westbrook, East Lyme. So all over the state, they're interested. And, you know, as much as we can incentivize developers and the state is doing yeoman's work to do so, we have to provide an as of right zoning mechanism in these towns so that 
the zoning is ready to go um, and it's not uh, a high hurdle for developers to get into these towns. You know, we're working with municipalities to be proactive about their housing development. You know, zoning commissions, the commissioners are volunteers. It's an adjudicative body. It's a, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down on, on a set of blueprints. And we're asking towns to now be more proactive, which they haven't had to be for the last 40 years. Uh, and Hiram, before I let you go, do you have a thought on that? I mean, there are there any other barriers to maybe jump over to get more affordable housing built in more suburban and rural towns in the state? Well, I think lots of the regulations are, are in fact, in place, John. One of, the, one of the key things, as far as I'm concerned, is the, is the perception issue, is that this makes it uh, very difficult for communities that are, are, think that um, there are large complexes of, of extremely poor people that are going to move into these communities. And I think that's not the case anymore at all. So to change that perception, make sure that the uh, planning and zoning commissions and even the neighborhoods that are, that are near where some of these developments are understand that uh, what affordable housing is and what it actually can do is it provides providing a place for, for school teachers and firefighters uh, to, to come and live there. So one of the things that I like to do is take the term affordable out of the discussion and call it attainable housing. And I think that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To remove that edge and sort of increase the, uh, the availability of that housing and provide a uh, the fact that it will fit into the communities very well. And I think Katie's exactly right that there are a lot of communities that are interested in, the, in that. And I think the continued education of the planning and zoning commissions in, the, in these communities uh, is extremely important. Uh, Hiram Peck is the Director of Planning and Community Development in Avon. I understand it's like your fifth day in the job, Hiram. So thank you for taking some time out for us today on Where We Live. That's right, John. Thank you very much. Uh, when we come back from our break, we'll hear more from our guests in studio. We're also going to be getting a, a story of someone who's uh, in the rental housing market. We're talking about the high cost of rental housing here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll ask the question, is violence contagious? We'll talk with Dr. Hank Schwartz from the Institute of Living in Hartford. He's been thinking about this idea and whether or not violence in society can be treated much like a disease. That's our conversation tomorrow. Hope you can join us. Today in the program, we're talking about, well, we're talking about this. The rent is just too damn high. We've heard that before, but it's true here in Connecticut, in a lot of rural and suburban areas, not just in cities. We're talking today with Katie Schaefer, a policy analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities, with Betsy Crum, executive director of the Connecticut Housing Coalition, and Nick Lundgren, deputy commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Housing. I want to turn now to someone who wants to share her personal story, Fiona Duke from the University of Connecticut. Uh, Fiona, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that, that the person from UConn called in because I'm I'm basically in the same situation now where um, I just two weeks ago moved to the UConn area um, and my options were extremely limited because there's no transportation where I work to where I work in Hartford, which basically limits uh, where you can live. My roommate goes to UConn. So where I can live in the area within a mile radius is owned by basically one property management company. So to find decent housing, you pay whatever they're asking of you. Um, but I'm also, I also have years of experience in the rental market all over Connecticut over the past five years and have been moving very frequently to try to find a place um, that optimizes the crazy amount that I'm paying with what I'm actually getting. So when I when I left um, and graduated UConn, I was actually a teacher in Bridgeport and wanted to live in my hometown of Stanford. 
Um, Stanford, as you know, incredibly expensive, almost impossible to find a good a good rental. Um, and as a single individual, I mean, I was looking at rooms in people's houses for six hundred dollars with a shared bathroom and a shared kitchen, um, which was, it was just completely crazy. Um, but it's what I ended up doing for a couple of years while I was a teacher. And then um, now I work in Hartford and having to room with my sister because both of us didn't want to live individually with our student loans that we had to pay and the incredible amount of bills. Um, and so we wanted to live in the New Haven area to kind of split our commute. We both had a 45-minute commute from that area. And the New Haven area was, again, incredibly expensive, almost impossible to find housing. So we ended up living in Hamden um, in a housing that was suboptimal with a very long commute and no public transportation. Hmm. Um, so recently we moved to Rocky Hill because I, I wanted to live in Hartford desperately, but the housing is incredibly expensive there as well. And what you pay for is a very small apartment, um, not very close to transportation again. Well, I, and I want to stop on, on that piece, if I know, because I think that transportation piece is something that we've we've just barely mentioned on the program so far, far and it really bears repeating. There's been a, a move across the state and really across the nation to try to figure out ways to build more housing around transportation hubs, making sure that we have more uh, apartments for rent and houses for sale near places where you can get on a train or a bus. But your experience sounds like you've not had a whole lot of success doing that, right? You're not able to live someplace and then easily get from there to where you work. No, and it and it limits your options considerably because then both of your roommates or whoever you're living with has to have a car and you can only live within a certain radius, so that limits your options and you can't get to a supermarket or a restaurant. It just makes it it's you're not able to find housing that may be a little bit further away or um, is convenient for all of the roommates involved because the transportation is not accessible. And can we just talk for a second, uh, Katie, about roommates? I mean, look, we're talking about you know, people in their mid-20s, maybe into their 30s, having to having to find a, a room in a house with people they don't know or find roommates. This is incredibly complex stuff. This does not make life easy because you have all the complications of paying for something, having to figure out how you're going to get to work from there, figuring out how you're going to get your groceries. And then you got to, I don't know, live with some stranger. This is probably a cost that might not have any sort of a, a line on a stat sheet, but it's a pretty important cost and a barrier for people, I'm sure. It is, absolutely. And, you know, people are forced into these situations because of the lack of housing. They have education and student loan debts that they're trying to pay off. And that delays um, things like home ownership, you know. And what we need is we need, you know, more smaller starter homes. You know, the housing stock that's out there just frankly isn't meeting the market. And, you know, in order to get those housing prices up in order to, you know, get some activity and turn in the marketplace, we need to have more housing options. Yeah. And of course, there's there's the other things that we've been hearing throughout the course of the program. I mean, we need to build housing uh, so that uh, teachers and firefighters and students can afford to live there. Uh, you know, one thing to maybe think about on the far side of this is how to make sure that teachers and firefighters get paid enough money to live and the students don't pay so much in uh, in the costs for their school, but maybe that's another program here on Where We Live. Uh, Fina, thank you so much for sharing your story. It really helps us uh, understand what's going on. I appreciate your time very much. 
Thank you. I, I want to go to Pam, who is calling from Brantford before we run low on time. Hi there, Pam. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I don't think you're telling the whole truth about 380G. You're not mentioning the deed restrictions that are applied, and I don't remember for how long they're applied on the um, on the houses, the, the multifamily houses or the single-family houses. You could buy a condo for $90,000 in Stanford, but it's not considered affordable under 380G unless it meets all of the formulas for the person to buy it, the landlord, if they're renting. Um, so that puts the town under the 10% hammer of developers. Could, could you just, Why aren't you yeah. talking about that? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you called so that we could talk more about it, Pam. Thank you very much for your phone call. Betsy Crum, would you like to talk about it some more for us? Well, I'll just mention, I'll put a little clarity uh, around what she's talking about, or a little context. 830G uh, is a section of the Connecticut General Statutes that, um, that uh, encourages towns to develop affordable housing or actually, to be more specific, it, it changes the burden of proof. If a town is less than 10 percent affordable housing it changes, and, their, and a developer's proposal is rejected, the burden of proof, instead of being on the developer to prove uh, why it was re- – that, that, the, that the project is needed, it mm-hmm. changes it to the town, has to prove why it wasn't needed. And that has um, put towns uh, who don't who have less than ten percent affordable housing stock um, in and sometimes in a defensive position. The the um, legislation requires that those units to count toward ten percent be deed restricted. That's what the caller was referring to. Um, but honestly, ten percent was never even thought of as uh, the most affordable housing any town should have. It was considered a sort of a, a basement, a sort of the least affordable amount of housing that a town has in order to have a good economic mix in its town. And I think Katie mentioned earlier, only thirty two of our towns of our one hundred and sixty nine towns even meet that threshold. Um, Nick, do you just have a, a quick thought on what the caller had to say? Yeah, I think the, the the Betsy is exactly right in terms of the the distinction that the caller is raising. This issue of uh, a municipality not getting credit, in a sense, for the units that are de facto affordable because of the actual rents that uh, that are um, charged there, rather than only the units that are deed restricted. And I think you know, 830G is a statute that has created some projects that are hotly contested. Uh, in some cases, they can really roil. Uh, the um, uh, neighborhoods and communities and municipalities. Our uh, our general sense of uh, of affordable housing and, and multifamily housing is that actually multifamily housing should be understood to be a win win on on all sides. Um, it should be understood to be a win win, but I'm sure it's not understood that way by all members of of people who come to town meetings, right? Right, and that's an education <laughs> issue, and that's and that's a cultural issue. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done, and and this program I think is extremely valuable in this respect. That we're uh, helping people understand that there are tremendous there's a tremendous value to the town, uh, to the residents of towns for multifamily housing in creating these options because these options are not for outsiders moving in necessarily. They're also for the, those very same constituents that are the people's neighbors. Uh, so that's critical. And I think if we're effective in engaging uh, uh, communities, neighborhoods, individuals, the public, developers in understanding that win-win value proposition, I think we'll actually get more done, more units out there 
And with that enhanced supply, I think we'll see rates come down, not just in the units that are financed by the state. I know you want to jump in, Katie, before we run out of time because we're close. I do. On the deed restriction uh, point, you know, we need to preserve affordable housing in each community. We don't want to get into the situation where, you know, we have a lot of investment downtown and people get start to get priced out of the market. We want to avoid that situation. We're trying to set up a sustainable system, and that's where the deed restrictions come in. Uh, quickly, Rory in Manchester, you got the last word, but you just have a few seconds. Go ahead. Hi. I just wanted to um, say that I feel like there's a lot of elitist psychology and the pricing of a lot of the rental properties. I live in Manchester where there's plenty of multifamily homes. I feel like the quality of the homes are better a lot of times than the homes in West Hartford. And I feel like I'm a young person without kids, so I don't really look at the school systems. I feel like the, you know, I can get a, a house in Manchester with granite countertops, and it's still maybe like $200, $300 cheaper than living in West Hartford. So I feel like that would be um, the psychology of the multifamily housing place a lot of trust. Because a lot of times I look at a price of a house, and I might not even, um, or a rental property, I might not even want it. Um, just because I don't trust the price in the neighborhood. It's that, a, not, not, not on the quality of the property itself. R- Rory, it's a really great point. And, and Betsy Crumb, just a few seconds here, but look, psychology is a part of this entire conversation that we're having. Well, and, you know, we're talking about market conditions. We're talking about supply and demand. This We're in a point in time where there's not enough supply for the demand. But, you know, Manchester's a great community and people will, should and, and will start to move there if there's not supply in the other communities. It, it kind of gets back to that point about do we want our community to stay the way it is or do we want to change the amount we need to change to meet the, ch- the fact that the world changes every day? Mm-hmm. And how do we get ahead of that and be proactive? The land of steady habits. Betsy Crum, <laughs> Executive Director of the Connecticut Housing Coalition. Thanks, Betsy, for coming Thank in. you. Thanks also to Katie Schaefer, Policy Analyst with the Partnership for Strong Communities. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thanks also to Nick Lundgren, Deputy Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Housing. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks to Susan Campbell, who started us thinking about this for her series on housing and homelessness. If you'd like to read more of her stories, go to WNPR.org. Our program today was produced by Lydia Brown with help from Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Kyone Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. I'm John Dankowski. This is where we live. <music>